Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome to this episode of GEMCAST. Today, I'm joined by an amazing pioneer in the history of geriatric emergency medicine, and we are going to be talking about just that, the history of geriatric EM. So joining me today is Teresita Hogan. Tess, welcome to GEMCAST. Hi, Christina. I'm very happy to be here. Tess is a professor at the University of Chicago, and she recently published an article in the Journal of Geriatric EM titled The History of Geriatric EM. And in it, she and her co-authors go through some of the major changes and breakthroughs, as well as some of the challenges that we've seen in geriatric EM in the past four or five decades. During that time, we've seen huge growth in the population of older patients, and then also in the recognition of the importance of geriatric EM as a field, and then also the need for continued systems change to meet the needs of that population. So Tess, I'm curious first, how did you personally become interested in geriatric EM, and what was the inroad for you there? So the inroad was as a resident my program director suggested that I get involved in what was called the geriatric task force. And like most residents, when my program director said something, I paid attention. (laughs) A smart move. Yes. So my program director suggested that I get involved. And then I found such a warm and welcoming group of people So in general, I think people who are involved in geriatrics are kind of the warm, fuzzy crowd among us, not the cutthroat people. And so we just got along very well. There was an extraordinary sense of mission. And it was older people are not getting good care in the emergency department. People are unnecessarily dying and Emergency physicians had not been really aware that this was going on. So we deal with death and destruction on a daily basis and don't really look across the spectrum to see what is happening. And so this became a very eye-opening thing that there was unnecessary morbidity and mortality among this group of people who we like to care for, right? They were our grandmothers and our mothers. We want to take good care of them. You know, it's so true. I love the mission-driven nature of the group of people. And also, no one goes into geriatrics for the power, prestige, and money. So it's kind of self-selects for a group of people who are really compassionate and driven and care about this population. Now, as you've looked at the changes over the last, I guess now, 50 years from the 1980s to where we are today, What were the main driving forces kind of on a population or healthcare writ large stage? So I think the driving force was, again, this sense of as emergency physicians, we want to do well by our patients. We want to give them the best care possible. So it was this recognition that people 
as a cohort, as a population, because of their age, were not getting care. And again, in this awakening to there are populations who don't get good care, whether it be racial or gender or age, and we don't like that. That makes emergency physicians angry, right? We want everyone to have equal opportunity. We want everyone to get good care. And that's one of our guiding principles. Hmm. So it was recognized way back before this became something that people really knew about, but it struck a deep chord. And therefore we started to recognize it, identify instances where it kept happening. So why is this population of people getting lousy care? And then once we identified it, we had to make this news known to everyone else. And there are still emergency physicians that don't really understand there is a population of people not getting good care because of who they are. How do we wake this up? Hmm. That's a great tie into thinking about, you know, there's obviously a, a lot of interest now in health equity. And maybe back in the 1980s, there wasn't as much awareness. And yet, a group of you were looking at geriatrics, even at that stage. Maybe could you expound a little bit on when you say, well, they weren't getting good care or older adults as a population, not necessarily individuals, but as a population, they aren't getting as good care. In what areas does that show up? Well, so you need to put yourself back into the early days of emergency medicine when as a field, we said we are open to everyone. So at all times, at all places, in all instances, we will take care of everyone. And that lent itself to a uniform approach to everyone. So people rebelled against geriatric emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine because they did not want to differentiate. So all of these niche or subspecialty areas were really frowned upon initially because they were adverse to the idea of everyone gets treated the same way. Then it was an awakening that you can't treat everyone the same way because everyone is not the same. So how do you acknowledge that there are differences? And so, for example, Everyone now knows that an 80-year-old who's having a myocardial infarction does not present with classic crushing chest pain. But when we went through that identification, we had to call it an atypical presentation of myocardial infarction. It's not atypical. It's exactly the way that 80-year-olds present. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and so e even the concept of Letting people know that older adults were different was ageist in and of itself. You know, it's an atypical presentation. Instead of just learning, this is how a 70-year-old presents, this is how an 80-year-old presents. Yes, and you know, I feel like that awareness still hasn't penetrated all the way into, say, cardiology necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis. Or even all of EM, there is still this use of this language of typical and atypical and not enough awareness still of, yes, this is just how older patients present. 
So you mentioned one barrier to change and adoption and acceptance of the concepts of geriatric EM being just not wanting to have to think about different populations differently. But of course, you would think of a neonate differently than a 60-year-old, than a 40-year-old. What were some other barriers to adoption or making changes and improvements? So also the idea of we as emergency physicians have to deal with the in-depth medical thing, but we are not social workers. We certainly don't trouble ourselves. Um, and this was the attitude at the time to deal with a person's living situation, nor their social supports at home. It was thought to be beneath the physician functioning at the top end of our license, right? So I come in and I will you know, perform CPR and intubate you and put in your chest tube and your central line. But I can't bother myself to ask about how many times you've fallen in the last year. And it is those very simple questions and the home situation, the social service aspect that is sometimes the critical factor to taking appropriate care of an older individual. So again, it was opening up our minds and looking at what do these people need as a physician? How do I fill this need? And if I cannot, then how do I get support services to the bedside of the patient? And that is something we're still struggling with today. It is definitely a paradigm shift. Thinking about our jobs more holistically, not just the moment that the patient is in the ED, but where are they coming from? Where are they going to? And those may be two different locations if they came from home, but now they need to go to rehab or they came from an environment that was unsafe. You know, as a slight tangent, one of my favorite questions that I've started asking EMS when they roll in with an older patient, I always try to run to the bedside so I can catch sign out from EMS when possible. But I ask them an open-ended question of what is the home environment like? And that has been so illuminating because sometimes you'll get answers that are like, whoa, it was very unsafe. There were, you know, jars of urine everywhere. There was hoarding. There was no electricity. There was no food in the fridge. Or sometimes you'll get responses of, you know, it was meticulously clean, have everything they need, looks like a very safe home environment. And just asking that question has been really helpful. But Let's move on to now talk through some of the major milestones and changes in geriatric EM. And in your report on the history of GEM, you start back in the 1980s. So walk us through a history here, starting back there. So in the 1980s, there was no geriatric emergency medicine. And any articles that were written about the older population in terms of their emergency care was in a geriatric journal. And very surprisingly to me, a lot of the early work was in trauma. So older ad adult trauma care is a very specific topic that needs to be differentiated immediately. So the idea of looking at that specific issue was something that did not happen in general emergency medicine journals. Slowly in the end of the 1980s, there were a few emergency medicine journals that started to write about the geriatric population. One of the things that really motivated this 
was this geriatric task force that was formed by SAM and funded by private philanthropy. So the John A. Hartford Foundation started to pump funding into the elucidation of this. And there were pioneers at John A. Hartford and the American Geriatric Society who recognized the aging of the United States population. It's happening world over, but they recognized the issue and called it the geriatric tsunami to, you know, kind of wake people up and say, something bad is coming. We're all going to be washed away by a wave of gray old individuals. <laughs> That's a great visual. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it, it was humorous. And again, there's this kind of ageist thing about that awakening. But nonetheless, it happened. And they recognized that there are not enough geriatricians in the United States to take care of this huge wave of older adults as they age. And so what can they do? They can make the specialists geriatric centered or give us geriatric knowledge. So it started by this private funding and it first manifested as educational activities. Let's teach the young residents how to take care of older adults. And then that became difficult because we have so much to learn. We have so much to teach our young residents. Is there room in the curriculum to learn not only the general presentation of myocardial infarction, to, to beat that analogy again, but now you've got to learn what it's like in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80th decade of life. So we needed to make room and that was difficult. So the funding from John A. Hartford and private philanthropy helped to give people careers in the study of geriatric emergency issues. We started to publish, we started to have research-focused careers that looked at geriatric issues. And so one by one by one, more people became geriatric emergency medicine champions and geriatric emergency specialists. They looked at these issues, they published on them, they taught it, and that effort continues today. You mentioned the geriatric task force that was formed to kind of define like what are the even the needs to do a needs assessment because you recognize the need for education at the resident level or the physician level. But what do you even teach them if you don't have the research and the evidence to back up what you're saying? And so a few of the recommendations or the needs assessment that came out of that geriatric task force were that first of all, there hasn't been much attention paid to the special needs of elderly persons in the ED, and that emergency physicians don't feel as comfortable caring for the older population. And then the, to your point earlier, the fact that the social and personal concerns of older adults are frequently not addressed in ED encounters when really that can make or break whether they thrive and survive at home or whether they come back to the ED. And then there was a recognition that there's a paucity of research in education in geriatric EM, and that overall, the principles of care for elderly patients in the ED have not been well-defined as they have for other special populations like children. 
And then a couple more were one is that the disease-oriented model that we use to care for non-elderly patients may not be as appropriate for elderly patients. So for example, as opposed to just a disease-oriented model, such as you have a UTI, you get antibiotics. In older adults, we have to think in more of a syndrome-informed way, thinking about the syndromes of recurrent UTIs or dehydration or delirium. And then finally, the fact that although the older adult population is the fastest growing segment, there was at the time little or no planning to meet the ongoing healthcare needs of the population in the future. And for those especially who are in training right now, yes, you may have picked emergency medicine, but you are going to be a geriatrician 25% of the time because a quarter of your patients very shortly will be older adults. And so we need to look not at just where are we now, but how are we creating the educational pipeline, but also creating the systems of healthcare that will allow us to meet those social needs or that will allow us to have dispositions from the ED to nursing facilities, et cetera. That's exactly right, is that we need to prepare as a specialty in recognition that this large demographic surge of older adults is coming and that they require specific emergency medicine training and systems of care. So right now, as an emergency physician, I really have two actions that I can do. I can send someone home or I can admit someone to the hospital. That is a very limited response and does not fit with the response that many elderly people or older adults need, which is that they may need support at home. How can I set up a visiting home nurse? Well, my emergency department in a very busy urban area does not have the ability to do that. It may be exactly what we need. So what are the drivers that in the future will help us with that? I believe that one of those is the huge financial burden on emergency departments and hospitals when we admit people to the hospital that costs a lot more than sending someone home. But those analyses are just now being done, is what happens when I get a visiting home nurse or a social worker assists me in setting up and expediting appointments to my clinics, for example. This is going to be what the system needs to adapt from its current, I have two options, I'm going to need five. Mm, yes. And we need the research to back that up to show there's a return on investment that it can be financially sustainable for healthcare systems. So let's move now into the 2000s. What were the big milestones there? So there were several milestones that are important to note. The first of which is that the American College of Emergency Physicians really became aware of this issue and started to embrace it so that there was a section of ASEP devoting itself to geriatric emergency medicine topics. SAM had already been there because they did the task force. Now SAM established an academy of geriatric emergency medicine. And the really key issue in the 2000s was an article by Dr. Yula Wang and her colleagues 
who described the geriatric emergency department. This was a very novel idea and made some in emergency medicine angry because they wanted to take everyone and do the same thing to everyone all the time. So having a specialized geriatric emergency department rubbed people the wrong way. And as it became popular, so the wild, wild west of geriatric emergency departments started and hospitals recognized they could have a competitive edge, a marketing edge over the hospital down the road if they we became senior friendly or a senior emergency department or an elder care department. And they started marketing, but there were no guidelines. There was nothing that identified a geriatric emergency department from a not geriatric emergency department. One of the funniest things is as one of the pioneers in this, I would go around to emergency departments in the country and I would say, what makes you a geriatric emergency department? And one nurse literally pulled out a shoebox that had a hearing aid and a pair of reader glasses in it. And she said, because we have this for our older adults. So they marketed themselves as a geriatric emergency department with that. And now we know that there are policies, protocols, equipment, educated staff. There's a myriad of things that you need to become a geriatric emergency department. And that was the awakening of the 2000s. That's great. And it's incredible how the concept of a geriatric ED went from heterodoxy to orthodoxy in just 10 years, because then in the 2010s, the geriatric ED guidelines were published and the geriatric ED accreditation program was formalized to say, hey, you can't just have a shoebox with a hearing aid. You have to have some meaningful care processes and change and quality improvement ongoing processes that will define you as a geriatric ED. So what were some of the big milestones in the 2010s? So what you just mentioned, the groundbreaking study, and no one expected this, was the Geriatric Emergency Department guidelines that were published in 2014. And they are a series of 33 recommendations that were expert consensus because we did not have the research to back this up. And so, you know, it was, it was similar to the development of the ACLS guidelines. You know, there was a smoke-filled room and a bunch of cardiologists said, maybe we should give these people epi. Okay. So the geriatric ED guidelines were similar. What do older adults need to help them do better in the emergency department? And so we looked at the literature, we looked at what was working in the world, what did the research say, and came up with these expert consensus guidelines. Because those exist, we were then able to say, okay, there's a standard, there's something to aim for. This place that does these things is a better department than a place that doesn't do these things. And so that was the groundbreaking thing. After that happened, all kinds of other things were able to occur. So the Geriatric Emergency Department Collaborative, which was a group of us that were early researchers and administrators and physicians practicing 
to improve care of older adults, started to preach and teach and publish and go to different hospitals and say, if you guys want to improve your care of older adults, these are the things that you can implement. That caught fire and the Geriatric Emergency Department Collaborative went around to hospitals all over the United States and said, here, this is what you can do. We taught interdisciplinary groups of nurses and physicians and social workers and pharmacists what they could do on a practical level. And department after department started to take part in this great experiment. And each institution said, this is our need. And another institution's need would be completely different. So there was this very heterogeneous group of institutions and physicians and nurses, all again with this common mission, how can we help older adults do better in our department? And it meant something different in the rural hospital or in the urban hospital. They tried and they instituted policies, protocols, procedures, they trained staff. And then we had a representative group to look at and say, how did hospital A become better with the institution of these policies? And all of those initiatives have just continued to grow. And I, I like how it brings in concepts of both, yes, we need people doing the research, we need people doing the education, we need people doing dissemination and really working out how do you implement these guidelines in your specific context. The other big thing that came out in the 2010s was gear. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so th this is a research-oriented group with funding from the National Institutes of Health that looks at specific geriatric issues. So there, have been, there were a paucity of places where geriatric emergency physicians could go to look at geriatric specific things. And, you know, there was the Beeson Award, there became the Gemstar, but now we have our own cohort of researchers applying to like-minded individuals and forming different areas for research. So for example, there is a gear subgroup that is looking at dementia in the emergency department. And we are promoting this and getting quality research done on a very specific level. The other thing that I di didn't wanna fail is to look at ASEP and the American College of Emergency Physicians looked at this wild, wild west of senior emergency departments, the one with the shoebox and the <laughs> one with a group of geriatric trained nurses those are qualitatively different. So ASEP said, we need to help our member physicians and hospitals to decide what is a better emergency department. How can we improve to take better care of our older adults? They used the geriatric emergency department guidelines as a linchpin they got a group of emergency physician experts to say, what are the criterion that we can use to externally validate a group 
or an individual hospital to prove that they do provide better care. And so the accreditation program was born. It has grown like wildfire. There are now over 400 emergency departments that have external validation of the quality of care they provide to older adults. And this group now, this elite cohort of hospitals can be studied and can say, mm. what is it that is improving performance and outcomes in quality care? And now that brings us to the 2020s. And of course, it's 2023 right now when we're recording. So we're still early in our own roaring 20s. And the defining characteristic here for healthcare is COVID. How did that impact older adults as a population? And then also thinking about how did that impact our research or did it promote the cause of geriatric EM or did it set us back? Well, COVID was essentially the case in point that proved beyond any doubt the need for older adults to get different care and the vulnerabilities of these older adults. The fact that they have issues that mandate emergency care and is a life or death situation. So we all now know that older adults were devastated. They were by far the largest number of people to have morbidity and mortality. We're talking in the 80% of people who were devastated by COVID were older adults. And so there's not an emergency physician who practiced during COVID who did not see older adults coming in devastated by the pandemic. We'd learned so many things. So again, this atypical presentation. So when an older adult presented to the emergency department with altered mental status, that was possibly COVID. No one would have thought of it. We were looking at fever. We were looking at cough. We were looking at runny nose. We were not looking at altered mental status. And now it's an accepted issue that that is a way that COVID presents in older people. So it was the case in point. It showed us that we need to be different. And I don't think that there's now an emergency physician that doesn't understand that we do need different care processes for older people. They can't just be part of the herd with the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds. Mm, right. And I... I feel the same kind of frustration with this continued paradigm of typical and atypical and the resistance to accept, no, there's an array of how these patients present. And if we box ourselves in to say, oh, if you have a fever, you get a COVID test. If you have chest pain, you get an EKG, as opposed to saying, hey, you could have altered mental status and that means you need a COVID test. You could be weak and dizzy and that means you need an EKG. And one of the numbers that struck me from your paper was that 90% of COVID deaths were in older adults, which is just, you know, horrifying and shocking and speaks both to the disease process and how it worked in the early days, especially, but then also to your point that we need to have different processes and different approaches. 
Now, as you reflect back on this, you know, 40 plus decades, four plus decades of geriatric EM, what are some of the themes that stand out to you in terms of what drove the change and then also what enabled the changes and this growth to be successful? So the key issue is that older adults are different. They present differently. And that was the first domino to fall, right? Older adults are different. They present differently. The next domino is we need to have a different way then to evaluate patients, to treat them. We need different care processes and we need to be aware of all of those issues. It begins with education. And if you only focus on resident education, you get that tip of the iceberg, but most emergency physicians that are practicing are not in residency. We are all long done with residency. And so how do you do continuing medical education and educate the experienced emergency physician so that they learn these things, especially those people who are not practicing in academic centers. But if you're out there and it's been a long time since you ever had a resident interaction. So that's important. The other things that stand out are that there are a few people who are, for lack of a better term, influencers in emergency medicine. The people that you look up to, the people that help make the policies and the protocols and the procedures, those are now, there are a lot of geriatric champions that have gone up through the ranks and have learned geriatric principles and are now the heads of their department or the dean of the medical school, for example, or the person that is making the determination in the National Institutes of Health who gets the funding and who doesn't get the funding. So we, it was a slow process of infiltrating, breaking the glass ceiling, moving people with an understanding of geriatric emergency medicine into positions of power and influence. So now you're not met with this, you know, what are you people talking about? This is not worth my time to, oh my goodness, you have to do this because it's better quality care. And I am now measuring you as a physician or as a department by the quality of care that you provide to older adults. And when I'm reflecting on the, the story that you've told about the last few decades, there's these this big theme of, okay, there was a need, but then you can't really make changes without some evidence, without champions to lead the change. And so really the, the funding, the philanthropic funding helped catalyze and give that kind of seed money to then establish champions in things like research, the Hula Wongs, the Tess Hogan's, the Chris Carpenters, and then in education, people like Don Milady, and then people who would work towards systems change. For example, with Jed C. Hula, Kevin Bice, and so many others who have worked on that. And then big system change with geriatric ED accreditation. And really going from a few people who felt that mission to developing them with seed funding to then demonstrate with evidence the need and then infiltrate the system, 
get into those positions of power in order to be able to change the system. So it's a great story of a lot of determination, a lot of hard work, and a lot of perseverance and patience through being told this is a crazy idea to, oh, this is the norm. What are your hopes for the future of geriatric EM? In 20 or 40 years, what would you hope that geriatric emergency care could look like? Well, it's always been about the care of the older patient. So our hopes have been the same as when they started, you know, 40 years ago, is to give quality care in a systematic fashion to every older adult who presents to the emergency department. So instead of being the individual that has the weakened disease on your chart as your chief complaint, and so you're kind of left in the corner of the emergency department. Nobody wants to see you. Nobody wants to take care of you. Your disposition is going to be a nightmare. Okay. All of those things have to change so that the resources will be available to the emergency physician at the bedside. If I need a physical therapist to help with a fallen older adult, and assess their gait and ensure their safety for discharge at home, that should be an order that I write. And then the process happens and it's done. It's not what currently goes on, which is, oh my gosh, I have to reach out as an individual physician to find a physical therapist who might be able to come down and assist with this. So the world is changing more and more emergency departments have those resources. They're externally validated as using the resource, the specific resource that I've mentioned, which is physical therapists in the emergency department. There's now a body of research that says this pays for itself. There are level one geriatric emergency departments that have published that they are making significant money by providing this service to their patients. So quality care should be appropriately reimbursed. That's our next hurdle is how do we bring that care to the bedside, not as a freebie, but as something that the healthcare system and insurers have decided this is a better way to care for our individuals. It's gonna save my insurance plan millions of dollars down the road. And all of these factors will align so that quality of care, education of that quality of care, payment for that quality of care, all align and make it doable to give quality care to all the older adults that need it. I love that vision. And I think it's something that every emergency physician can get behind. If we can push that easy button where we get you know, a social work or a geriatric trained nurse or NP who comes and assesses the patient, physical therapy, social worker or case manager, and that that is all done in a semi-automatic fashion, of course, that's what we want. And if it can be paid for and save the healthcare system money, save the whole, you know, healthcare dollars overall, if that patient is then going home to a safe place and not coming back for a fall tomorrow, 
And then having more options, the dichotomy of go home and we wish you well versus admission when you don't really need to be admitted is it's a struggle. And many older patients don't meet one of those two options or aren't aren't that isn't a great choice for them. So having a menu, an array of options so that we can really match the services and care to the patient's needs in a more nuanced and individualized manner. So Tess, thank you so much for being on GEMCAST. It's been wonderful to hear your perspective. And thank you for your perseverance and your work in the last several decades to promoting this field and promoting patient care for our older adults. Thank you. It's been a wonderful journey. Thank you for helping us highlight it. And the, you know, the challenge continues. We need to rise up and meet it. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.